women's Christmas party, and um, they had a blast. It was a good, good time. Um, all right, so digging in. This is what I want you to see in a quick visual graphic that when you read the book of Exodus, like we've been working through, it's each of the plagues is just kind of sequential. It's almost like a string of pearls. There's one, then there's another, and there's another, another, and it just kind of flows, all right? Now, in between those plagues, there's a little dialogue. Well, Moses said this, uh, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said that back, so it'd get a little interchange between the two, but the, for the most part, it's just plague after plague after plague after plague, except something happens between the ninth and the tenth plague. That's very, very curious, okay? And that is a prescription of the Passover. So let's do a real quick vocab check to make sure that we're on point. What is the difference between the word prescription and the word description? Now, I know we have a pharmacist or two here, so they're going to be obviously, uh, they've got this. What is a prescription in comparison to a description? The pharmacist describes what to do with the medicine very good. Anybody else? That's good. Anybody else? Yeah. So a description describes what happened. A prescription does what? Tells you what should happen, right? So a prescription tells you what should happen. A description tells you what did happen. So there's an odd prescription inserted between 9 and 10. Here's what it looks like if you block this stuff out. This is what it's going to look like. You get the first block, which is a promise of back pay. By the way, how long, Bible scholars, how long did, did Israel stay in slavery, in bondage, forced labor in Egypt? How long? 430 years. All right. That's a long time. Aaron said very wisely that uh, the birth of Jesus came after a long, long waiting period. Yeah. Can you imagine the generations praying and praying and dying off and then their children and the grandchildren taking up this cause to pray for deliverance from bondage to Egypt? And it looks like God's taken his sweet time after 430 years to finally answer that prayer. Right. God's taken his good, sweet time. What's up? Does he care? We get to question. We, we, we do question God. When, when he doesn't answer when we think we want him to answer. So back pay for 430 years of uh, forced labor. Gold, silver, jewelry, all kinds of things were given in abundance to Israel saying, please just get out of here. Enough. Get out. Here's your back pay. Then you have the death of the firstborn briefing. That's when God says, okay, Moses, Aaron, huddle up. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to tell everybody in Egypt, uh, uh, in Israel, in Goshen, to do so-and-so because I'm going to come and strike the firstborn. So it's a briefing. And then either Moses or an editor uh, adjusting the text to be to be more clear for us today, inserts a summary of the, of the plagues. It's kind of oddly inserted. And then, and then you get this big block of Passover prescription part one. And it's all the teachings. For example, all right, I want every household to get a lamb or a goat 
according to the size of the, of the home. And then I'm, I want you to live with it. It's gonna, you're going to take it in. And then on this day at twilight, you're going to kill it as a family. Can you imagine doing that? You know, uh, some of us are deer hunters. And, and you know, you, you, you harvest a deer out in the field. And you do the rough butchering out in the field. It's a field dressing. Then you take it home. And you pro- Can you imagine doing that with your wife and kids? With a goat? With a lamb? They did that. They did that. And then it's to be roasted by fire. There's, you don't boil it. You have to roast it by fire. And then you have to eat it with bitter herbs. And then you have to eat it with unleavened bread. So this big prescription and why they got to do that in the details. And then it hits. This last block's 12, uh, chapter 12, 20 and 32. The death of the firstborns. And that's of livestock and of people. So there's this big teaching block inserted there that's a very curious thing. And then look, it happens again. Another summary of component of the Exodus and what's going to be happening. But then there's another big, big prescription, part two on the Passover. And then you get this massive chunk of detail that describes the actual Exodus. It's really, really amazing. So this is what I want us to do. I want everyone to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. All right. Yeah. We're going to begin with verse 13. Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt, all right? Now, keep your eye there, and I want you to bump over to 11.7, 11.7, in describing when this plague will hit. If you, if you obey what God says, not even a dog will threaten any of the sons of Israel, nor anything from person to animal, so that you may learn how the Lord distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. I want you to tie those two verses together, 11.7 and 12.13. God says specifically, this is going to be the ultimate, one of the clearest ways that God is going to make a distinction between Israelis and Egyptians. Ladies, uh, probably you do the laundry at your house and probably you've been doing, if we counted them up, thousands and thousands and thousands of loads of laundry over the decades, over the years, right? One of the things you do when you're going to do laundry is you, I'm going to bring in a French word called triage. And in the medical world, it means uh, to give an emergency assessment and determine treatment based on priority. But if you speak French, triage means to sort. We're going to sort things out. The lights, the whites, and the colors, and you separate them, right? There's a distinction between something that's a white shirt and a red, a red sweatshirt or something like that. God is saying, I'm going to sort things out. I'm going to put them in two piles, and I know the difference between an Israeli and an Egyptian. Now, if the Israelis 
did not comply with the command to take the blood from the lamb that you slaughter as a family. And the little kids are watching dad take, uh, take anything, a cloth, a stick, anything, brush, hiss up, something, dipping it in the blood that was caught from the slaughtered lamb and putting it on the posts and the lintel. If that didn't happen in an Israeli home, their firstborn would die. So the defining marker, the thing that God's going to look at and goes, that one's mine. They're obeying my word. Is the one that has the blood on the post and the lintels. And out of that radically symbolic act and this very detailed prescription on how to do that, God starts to teach an entire nation. I expect you to be different than everybody else. There's to be a distinction between you and they. There's to be a distinction. That's 12. Let's look at 13. Chapter 13. Verse 1, chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the firstborn of every womb among the sons of Israel, among people and animal alike belongs to me. Pop quiz. You ready? I know this is not a fair question, but it might move us forward. Why? Why is it that God would make such a big deal about the firstborns uniquely belonging to him? Why? What's a possible, reasonable theological explanation for that? Why? Why would God say the firstborn is holy? Why? Is there a level of purity that comes? Like a secondborn already has the history of the family behind the firstborn? Okay, that's really good, Matt. Maybe something about purity? Sure. Somebody else? Interesting, yeah. And according to Jewish tradition, they get the majority of the, their father's estate. And Jesus was the firstborn. Ah, there you go, Janice. Isn't it interesting? Now, theologically, we are not Mormon. Do you understand? We are not Mormon. Okay, so let's do a real quick commercial for Mormonism here. If you're a Mormon, you have this idea that Jesus is a sub-form of God. So you've got, can I say it twice? If you say it twice, it means more. God, God, you know, the real one. God, 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 right? And then below him is Jesus. And he, God had sex, cosmic sex. There you go, Mormonism, God has cosmic sex. And birthed Jesus, okay? And Jesus becomes God-ish, God-like, okay? And, and, then, and then you have, you know, Holy Spirit below him. So, so you've got God and Jesus they're not the same. And in fact, if you become a Mormon, one of my friends recently did, their, their, their offspring did, um, you can eventually become like God and have cosmic sex and populate your own planet. Welcome to Mormonism. That's the end of the party. There it is. <laughs> I didn't make it up, okay? There it is. Now, by the way, your first encounter with Mormonism, you're going to say, oh my goodness, you're so pro-family. This is like Hallmark. It's <laughs> True, absolutely. And do they, do they share the gospel? Yeah, but not in the biblical way. 
So, why did I say all that? We're not Mormons. We don't believe that there's God, like God, God, the real one, and then below that is a lesser version of the, the real one, and we call him Jesus. We don't believe that. We're Christians. We believe in the biblical teaching that God as Father, God as Son, and God as Spirit are uniquely three and uniquely one. They're the same. So you get this idea that God uh, expresses himself as Father, as Creator, Elohim, Adonai, Creator, Lord God, and then you have Jesus God as, as the merciful, self-sacrificing God. And then you have God as spirit, the one that is inside of you, the still small voice, the very screaming loud voice, <laughs> the truth speaker in your, in your heart. All the same. All the same. So, Janice, Jesus is designated as the firstborn of God, even though they're theologically the same. He's designated the firstborn. For God so loved the world, Mary and Jerry, so good to see, that he gave his only begotten son. Ah, firstborn. In Latin, sui generis. There's nobody like him. Nobody like him. The firstborn, God gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. Are you seeing how these, these teachings mesh? Passover, Lord's Supper, Passover, Jesus. John chapter 1, Jesus' relative, a guy who wore... Uh, girded up with camel's hair and ate bugs and honey. Some wild man, Nazarene-like, didn't wash his hair. He looked rough. When he saw Jesus walking toward him, he said, that's the lamb. That's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the firstborn, God is setting the stage. God is saying, um, um, mm. Caroline is precious. Uh, she's 10, growing very mature, very much a leader in our home, uh, love Caroline. There are times when Caroline might ask a question and I can't give a very complex adult version of the answer. I, I kind of create a bit of a breadcrumb trail maybe or I, I get her to that step and got it, the next step, got it, okay, now we're together, we're communicating, then up here, and then all of a sudden we're now talking on the adult level and Caroline is understanding what I'm saying. They kind of staircase it, maybe breadcrumb, trail it along so that Caroline understands. I think that's what God is doing. A lamb that's going to be slaughtered, an innocent lamb, blood on the doorpost of your home, huh? breadcrumb trail, we're staircasing along. The firstborn is holy, hmm, you've got to, you've got to eat this meal as though you're in a hurry, like this, is, this isn't the kind of meal that is, uh, uh, that's going to point to 
the host and the cooks and how wonderful the meal prep was and what a glorious table setting. No, 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 this is not about a meal that's gonna call attention to the family. This is about something that's happening in crisis. There's an urgency about this thing. In fact, it even says when you eat it, you're supposed to eat it with your, your purse, ladies, your purse over your shoulder, your car keys in hand, to use the vernacular. Uh, they would say your belt on, your staff in hand, your sandals on, and you're, and you're eating really, really fast. You speed eat Passover. It's a speed meal. It's not this wonderful three, four hour event. We're going to slowly eat this and think about that. No, no, no. This is speed eating. And of course, unleavened bread. You understand that. Chapter 13, verse 12. You shall devote to the Lord every firstborn of the womb and every firstborn offspring of an animal that you own. The males belong to the Lord. Mm. The inheritance, something about passing on the Father's blessing. This is rough. This is going to be hard on the ears, but it is the word of God. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you're to break its neck. Every firstborn among your sons you shall redeem. This is really curious. Redemption from a lamb? Introduced in the text. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, what was he riding? It wasn't a Roman war horse. The equestrian level of, uh, in Roman society, the equestrian order, you had great authority and, and, and military attire, and you had an amazing Roman horse. And when you saw that white horse and the gear that that guy had on riding it, you knew that was power. Uh, it's something like, you know, that, that white Dodge Charger with the blue light thingies? that comes up behind you and all of a sudden you go, oh, you have a whole new level of what the word car sick means. You're you're like, you're really sick at that point. And you see that white charger and those blue lights. Oh, man. Well, if you're in Jerusalem and you saw that white horse, that war horse, the equestrian class, and what that guy was wearing, it's like, oh, don't, don't do anything to draw attention. It's like that curious reflex we have when we think we see a police car. We slow down, really. We slow down humbly, like they won't notice we're slowing down. But we do. They know. They know. They always know. We're going to redeem a donkey with a lamb? Wow. What do donkeys do, Jovi? Joe? They work. They bear burdens. They're nicknamed the beast of burden. And Jesus comes in on a young donkey. He, he marches, marches into Jerusalem, you know, celebrating who he is. And they're all saying, hail him, hail him. Yeah, he didn't come in on a war horse. He came in on a farm animal, something lowly and humble. And that kind of creature, something lowly and humble, can be redeemed with a lamb? <laughs> But if it's not redeemed, 
something dishonorable happens, and it's have its neck broken. Hmm. Sacrifice. And it shall be, verse 14, and it shall be, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? It's like, Dad, what's going on? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord put to death every firstborn in the land of Egypt from human firstborns to animal firstborns. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, every firstborn of the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Dad, how's that for being a spiritual leader in your home? Yeah, yeah. Jacob Huffmeyer was a spiritual leader today. Aaron, spiritual leader today. Thank you. We want the children to be around when we're doing the Advent because we're wanting to pass the story of Passover, the story of redemption onto our kids. Because when our kids say, why do we go to church? Or when our kids, kids say, why are we doing the Lord's Supper? And like, what's this up with juice kind of like blood and bread kind of like flesh? Why? Why? We're to give them an answer. We're to pass faith on to the next generation. This is what the Lord wants. And every firstborn of my sons, I will redeem. It's amazing. So, all right, I want to show you this. Why does God insert through Moses these big blocks of teaching about Passover before the 10th plague even hits? Number one, it's inserted in the middle of the, of the plague text to serve as a prolepsis. There's a fancy word, a prolepsis and prophetic foreshadowing of the death of Jesus, all right? Prolepsis means to speak in advance, to speak in advance. Um, uh, imagine your teenager popping in saying, hey, I cleaned my room, and can I have the car keys? And you say, you cleaned your room? Great. Did you also empty out all the trash and so and so and so and so? And are you going to come home at the agreed time? All of a sudden, dad or mom are bringing up stuff that wasn't talk, talked about. They're speaking in advance, making sure everybody knows what's going on. It's a prophetic foreshadowing of the death of Jesus. Um, Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The tenth plague on Egypt will be the ultimate means by which God will distinguish between Egypt and Israel. Everyone turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. This, it, it's as clear as it's going to get, Christ Church. This is it, Matthew 22. And there's a, a story given by the Lord that brilliantly teaches the meaning behind Passover and the Lord's Supper and the redemption story. And look at this. This is Matthew 22. We're going to start at verse 11. I can turn there. There we go. Okay. When the king came to look over the dinner guests, there's a big dinner party, and he invited all these people. When the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. 
Then the king said to the servants, tie his hands and feet, throw him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is really strange. Who would do that to somebody who stumbles in on a wedding party? Who would do that? Nobody would do that. Are we talking about an actual wedding ceremony? When you look at 22, the, the, the previous section, the, um, it goes something like this. There was a king, verse 2. There was a king who held a wedding feast for his son, for his son, a king for his son. Hmm, and he sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. King's having a banquet, having a wedding feast for his son. And he invites all these people, come to the wedding feast of my son, but they will not come. Again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened cattle are all butchered and everything's ready. It's a feast. There'll be lots of wine. Come, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their separate ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. And the rest seized his slaves and treated them abusively and then killed them. Does this remind you of anything? What is going on? What is this about? What is it about? What's that? The Jews. Yes, it's about Israel. It's about who are the slaves that are going out calling all of Israel to come to the banquet of his son. The slaves are the prophets. You, the, the prophets go out. And what do the people do to the prophets? The king said, enough. The king said, enough. And a horrific, a horrific judgment is given to those before the wedding starts. And that is on those who refused to come to the wedding. And the king ordered, he was angry, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Do you know what that's a prophetic word of? Vespasian, the Roman general and the other generals that marched in and leveled Jerusalem, eighty sixty six to eighty seventy. Jesus prophesied there will be not one stone left upon another. So this big wedding feast is this amazing love story that God so loved the world, he sent his son, and he's inviting the world to believe in his son. It's the gospel. And there are judgment on those who refuse to come to the wedding. And then this curious thing, the king says, we've got to have people. So go to the highways and byways. Go, go and get people to come. So it's time for the wedding to begin. And somehow a stranger is in there and doesn't have the wedding clothes on. No, no scholar knows exactly what those wedding clothes are. Okay. If you find out, please let me know. You know what's really going on? God judged those who were invited and refused to come. So what's this stranger inside the wedding feast that is judged and punished? Who is that? Who is it, Freddie? Satan. Satan? Anybody else? Imposters. Imposters. Anybody else? What's that? People that didn't accept Christ. But go to church. They're very religious people. They're people who've been baptized. 
There are people who have joined the church. There are people who are acting like they believe the story, acting like they are insiders, when in all actuality they're not. They're outsiders trying to fit in among insiders. They're not born again. They're just church attenders. They're going to the party and they've never known what it means to be born again. And so those who refuse to come are judged. Those who come but are not true believers are equally judged on both ends. Why? Why? Because the death angel does come. He will come. And he will look to see if there's blood on the post and lintels of your heart. And if you have never applied the blood of Jesus to your heart, you will be kicked out of the wedding party. The Passover meal will serve as the ritual act of devotion to Jehovah throughout all generations. The Passover for us has become the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper for the new Israel of God. And there's so many scriptures about that. Please appreciate this last line. There's Egyptian sin in the Israeli. Do you know that? You think Israelis are pride-free? There's Egyptian sin in the Israeli. There's Israeli sin in the Egyptian. In other words, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Not one at all. The only one who is righteous and considered as such is the one who has blood on the doorpost and the lintel of his heart by faith. That's it. That's it. That is the only way. Because you and I know you can keep the rules, keep the Ten Commandments, not break any of the rules, and still be rotten in the secret place of your heart. The pride, the bitterness, the grudge holding, the axe grinding, we can go on and on and on with secret lusts and secret sins and the lies and, the, and all the stuff that, that we do in our addictions when nobody's around. There's Israeli sin in all of us. There's Egyptian sin in all of us. But that thing, that singular thing that's going to separate us from the Egyptians, the Israelis, the Egyptians, the believers and the non-believers, it's going to be the blood of Jesus on the post and lintels of our heart. That's it. And that is why God, through Moses, inserted these huge blocks of teaching in the middle of a simple historical story. Plague one, plague two, plague three, right on down the line. But boy, between nine and 10 is a massive block of teaching material that's so critical. Moses says, God says, this is to be observed in your generations perpetually. You don't skip on this one. You gotta do this one every year. That's how important it is. And so, by the way, this is one of the main reasons why we always observe the Lord's Supper at Christ Church. Because every Sunday, every Wednesday that we're here and we take the bread and we take the cup, it is the Passover in miniature form. It is the gesture we do that says the blood of Jesus is on my heart, the post and lentils of my heart. 
And I believe that he is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. All right, I'm going to pray for God's blessing on us now. Abba, Father, I love you. I thank you. You've been so kind. And I pray that if anyone is here and that they do not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would cut through the deceptions, the doubts, and you'd get to their heart. I pray that they would see that religion gets nowhere. It may make us look good on the outside, but inside we can be like whitewashed tombs. But it is only through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that we are made clean, white as snow, pure. And when you look at us, instead of looking at me and my sin, you're going to look at me and you're going to see the blood of your son. And you're going to say, this one's mine. And you're going to hand me a glass of wine at the wedding supper. And I will say to you, Emmanuel, God, you are with me because of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that everybody here would be born again and know you as Lord and Savior and live out the power and the authority of the gospel, the good news, and not hide it under a bushel basket. God bless now. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.